Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. A few months ago, Marcel Vandehoff interviewed me on his podcast, The Meeting Strategist. He created Meeting Strategist to help senior professionals across industries think more strategically about business conversations and improve their listening, questioning, and meeting skills. With his permission, I've shared that discussion on this week's show. You can learn more about his work at meetingstrategist.org. Our conversation starts with my background and covers my communications with Warren Buffett, characteristics of successful active managers, manager meeting structure, culture assessment, tools for effective listening, 
lessons I learned from David Swenson, and my preparation and conducting of podcast interviews. Please enjoy my thoughts on interviewing and manager meetings with Marcel Vandehoff asking the questions. Hi, everyone. My name is Marcel van der Hoef, and you're listening to Meeting Strategist. On this podcast, I interview professionals and thinkers from all walks of life to learn more about their approach to meetings and extract tips, strategies, and ideas to help you get more out of meetings. My guest on this episode is Ted Seides. During his more than 25 years in finance, Ted has built unique expertise in the area of manager selection, picking investment funds that he believes can beat the market. He's the author of So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund and host of the Capital Allocators podcast, on which he interviews investors and others about the investment challenge and how to approach it. This episode provides inspiration for professionals who regularly find themselves assessing people and teams. You'll learn why meetings are crucial in manager selection, how Ted prepares for these interviews, and how his experience as a podcast host helps him as an investor. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ted Seides. Thanks for uh, joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Marcel. In your podcast, uh, Capital Educators, you always start by asking people about their personal story. And now it's your turn. So tell me a bit about yourself and how you got interested in investing. I think I got my first interest in investing because my father, who is a doctor, used to watch kind of the predecessor to CNBC. I think it was called CNN-FN, and they just had the ticker at the bottom of the screen. I don't think I had an interest in businesses. I didn't know that stocks were attached to businesses. I just liked stocks. And my buddies from high school and I used to go to the harness racing horse tracks on weekends when we were old enough to get in and and bet. And I hated losing money, but I always liked trying to make money. So I think that was the initial spark. And I took a couple classes in college. Again, I still didn't know much. I hadn't bought my first stock at all. And then my junior year of college, I took a big survey class that David Swenson taught at Yale. And he mentioned that they hired one person a year. And so my senior year, alongside of all the kind of traditional investment banking consulting interviews at the time, I interviewed with the Yale Investments Office and ended mm-hmm. up getting that job and knew not much, but it seemed like a great environment. And so I took the job and that was that. So I stayed at Yale for five years mm-hmm. and it was a terrific time. David had been in the seat for seven years. So the portfolio had really taken shape in his image and it was a period of terrific implementation of his strategy. So I really learned everything I could about manager selection and the sourcing process and due diligence and putting portfolios together. And at the ripe age of 27, I thought I knew everything. And so I went off to business school. And at the time, I thought I wanted to do direct investing, particularly in the stock market. And when I came out, I did that a little bit and just I just didn't have the same excitement for it that I did on the manager side. And I wasn't 100% sure why, but there are certain tools about your careers. The one I remember most, a, a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? I looked at it and I got to this little Venn diagram of three bubbles that were investing, sports, and statistics Mm -hmm. as sort of the three things that I really loved. And 
I kind of thought more about it, and I realized what I really loved about sports was the statistics part, and it was really sports slash statistics investing in people. And you put those three things together, and it was exactly what I had been doing at Yale. So I found my way back into that and ended up forming a partnership called Protege Partners that focused on smaller managers and seeded new hedge funds. And that was a similar way of approaching the investment challenge than the one I saw at Yale. So it felt like I was able to apply that and business did great for a while and did okay after the crisis and hedge funds struggled a little bit more. And uh, I left in the fall of 2015 and have been doing a bunch of things since, but most recently have been managing a single family office and we'll see what happens with that. We may build it into a multifamily office over time. And then, of course, I started this podcast called Capital Allocators, where I interview chief investment officers of large pools of capital and decision makers and other interesting people that can help chief investment officers think about the investment challenge and how to approach it. Hmm. And you say, like, when you went to business school, you thought you knew everything, but you didn't. What's the biggest area where you just keep learning? Well, in the particular field of investing that I was focused in, there's a, a set of fundamental principles about investing that have to do with understanding everything from security analysis to portfolio construction to manager selection. And a lot of that science aspect of it was things I learned at Yale. Hmm. And there is no better training, there's no better discipline, there's no better process that I've seen in my career than what David and Dean Takahashi put together at Yale. What you learn is implementation. And it's very hard to learn any field just by studying it. You hmm. really have to get in and do it. And so you can read about behavioral finance yeah. as an example, but you'll still make all the same mistakes everybody else made. You just have to figure out how to get a little bit better mm -hmm. because your brain is wired in a certain way and you're going to make similar mistakes. You may be more cognizant of what those mistakes are because you've read about behavioral finance, but until you're in the seat doing it and making those mistakes for yourself, you don't really even start the learning process. And so that was really what I found coming out of Yale. It wasn't that there was factual body of knowledge that I needed to learn that I hadn't learned already. It was just all of the things that come from doing it, all the subtleties. I want to fast forward to one of the uh, most loss-making endeavors in your life, at least that's the way to look at it. The bet with Warren Buffett, the original letter to Warren is in your book. And I think the tone is both directness and playfulness, I would say, at least how I took it. How did you decide which tone to strike? It was a, a very successful <laughs> letter because you, you know you got in touch with him and most people pay a lot of money to even you know have a drink with him or whatever so but you did something right there yeah i think what i did in the letter was a few things the first is i made reference to the challenge that he had posed hmm. and i assumed that that was something that interested him And then I made reference to a few kind of famous investment aphorisms that related to his thesis about fees being high. And then I had known about him enough to know where he liked to eat. And I didn't know at the time there was no monetary amount tied to the wager. So I made reference to both his... Well, I think at that point in time, I made reference to his favorite restaurant and said, you know, maybe loser buys steak at Gorat's or... 
his salary is like $100,000. So I proposed, or how about one year of your salary? So I think there was a little bit of familiarity of knowing a few things about him, which I think anyone who pays even a little bit of attention could have known those things. And I mean, to the extent that the letter was playful, that's just more a reflection of me and my writing. So it's just sort of putting yourself out there as yourself and not trying to say, oh, I'm going to be playful. So Warren responds to that. I was like, oh, no, this is me. So here you have it. What was it like to meet him for the first time? Oh, I was really nervous. I didn't grow up in the investment side kind of worshiping him, but he's an important person, right? So I, I remember having like, yeah, absolutely. I remember having like lists of questions to bring and just being excited and nervous for the experience. He's such a brilliant conversationalist and so engaging that the conversation can go anywhere. Did you ask any of your questions on the list when you prepared for your first meeting with him? Oh, I did. Yeah. I don't remember what they were. I know one of them was asking him about A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, because at the time he was involved in A-Rod re-signing with the Yankees, which as a big Yankee fan, you know, in retrospect, I'd say maybe that wasn't the best thing in the world for the team. So I was very interested in his sports relationships and sort of what his life is like. How much travel does he do? Does he really eat as badly as he you know, claims he does. And, and then a whole bunch of interesting stuff about, uh, about business and investing. And so, yeah, we weaved our way through that, but I don't think it was this sort of linear process of, I'm going to ask this question and then the next question. In the end, what was the meeting like compared to what you expected? It sounds like it was just a conversation. That's all. Yeah, that's what it was. The first time I think I was there for five hours, you know, went to his office. For oh, a little that's, bit that's a, a pretty long day. conversation. He is incredibly generous with his time. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being sort of giddy at how much fun it was. I didn't know that I'd ever really see him again or come out again. I figured I had to talk to him about the bet for a number of years. And so that turned out he had a lot of fun too and led to repeating the experience many times. Hmm. What I found out when I also prepared, of course, for this conversation with you is that's also preparing and looking into Warren Buffett to some extent. He's very aware of the importance of communications. And I saw somewhere that he early on in his career, he did a communications course, I think, with Dale Carnegie. Is there anything you learned from him about communication? I do think that there is a degree of authenticity in him that you could translate over to communication in that when you spend some time with him, you realize that he is very much the person he projects in that he's absolutely brilliant, but he's also a very down-to-earth, Midwestern values person. And it's just who he is. So sometimes people will criticize him for being contradictory or you know he, what he'll say about Coca-Cola and sugar, but he'll put down something else. And my experience, at least with him, is that he is this incredibly genuine, earnest, authentic person. And so I think there is a lesson in try to communicate with someone or with a wide audience how you are and don't try to be somebody else. Hmm. If we try to get into his head, why do you think communications is so important to him in his role as an investor? I think it's the same with any interaction between people. Mm -hmm. Communicating a message is something that's just innate 
in humans and in any business interaction, you need to express who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, and how you'll do that. And mm -hmm. for him, he sits in a seat where he has a big pile of cash and he's looking to find attractive businesses to buy. So he has, for decades now, reiterated a message of the types of businesses he wants to buy for people so that he can get sort of inbound inquiries. And so for his particular style of investing, that's what's been important in communicating a consistent message about what he's trying to accomplish and getting to the point where it gets easier to do that because ideas come to him instead of him having to just go out and find every idea himself. What are the typical human capabilities that can give active investors an edge in the market, like in this data-driven world? Uh, <laughs> so it's a funny time to be talking about it, as you know, because it's been such a challenge for active managers over a long stretch of time. But you are there a believer are... in active investment, right? Yes, yes. Not for everyone, but I am. You have to take everyone's perspective at it. When Warren looks at this, He's looking at the entire universe of active managers and saying that if you take all these people together and they charge fees, together they make the market, you charge fees and you're going to lose. And he's absolutely right. My perspective was I started my career working for probably the best selector of managers in the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't participate, nor have I through my career, in a large swath of active management. I focused on certain types of active managers that I saw through my experience have great success in beating the market over time. So it's not that I think that Warren's wrong and I'm right. It's just that active management can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. In terms of the personal characteristics, there are some that are fairly consistent across successful active managers. Mm -hmm. That includes people who are incredibly competitive, highly intelligent, highly emotionally intelligent, and also go at it with a balance of perspective in their life that let them do it for a long time. There are many, many more people that share those characteristics than there are successful active managers. So you need a certain set of characteristics that have to do with the disposition of the person and the behavioral temperament of the person that will allow them to be more likely to succeed. But then that also has to marry with a certain discipline, a certain investment strategy, a certain set of beliefs, and more likely than not a team around them that all contribute to the potential for success in beating the market. If you look at that edge and where the edge comes from, how do meetings fit into that? If I listen to your podcast, like so many times your guests talk about the hundreds of meetings they have a year. So what can they get from meetings that you can't get from crunching the numbers and looking at terminals and screens? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount. And so I think the process of interviewing a manager flows somewhat similarly in the types of meetings that many different allocators have. And they're different across the meeting. So the first meeting, and usually also the second or third meeting, tend to be fairly factually based. So there are certain things you just need to learn. You want to learn about the person's background. You want to learn about how they think about investing. You want to learn about 
how they approach it and what their portfolio looks like and who's on their team and how have they performed in the past. And then usually, the, I say the first or second or third meeting, because in those first couple of meetings, you might have roughly the same meeting with different subsets of people on the other team. Mm-hmm. And so as the person on the other side of the table, you're looking for consistency of the message. You're looking for the way people interact with each other to try to sense, is this a, a highly functioning team? And then as those meetings go on, if the first few meetings lead themselves to the next meeting, you start to get a little more nuanced and a little bit more creative in the questioning. And that's where the different styles of different allocators move in different ways. So for example, Mm. some like to think about one example of an investment and dive very, very deeply into that and use that as a way of framing what they had just heard about the process. Yeah. And then they'll do that with a second example. And then they'll do that with a third example. And when you get the people talking about what they're actually doing, then you can sort of pay attention to, well, this is what they said they were doing. And do those two things marry up? And not only that, but because people have these you know, thousands of meetings, how well does the manager know that, say, stock compared to everybody else I've heard? either who also know that stock or have, say, similar companies. And and that's where you get into more of the art of questioning and where experience comes in, right? You can imagine when I was 22 years old and someone was talking about a stock and an asset management company, mm. I didn't really know anything and I didn't have any sense of history, so I couldn't really ask good questions. Whereas you do this for 25 years, you've seen companies, the number of companies are finite, you might know something about management teams, you know about cycles, and you can just ask better questions. So that's one way of taking it. Another way that I've seen also very successful is people pay more and more attention to the dynamics of the decision-making process and the team, less about the specific investment examples. And so they'll pay careful attention to how does that investment manager conduct their meetings with their team, with management teams of companies, who's involved in the meeting, who takes notes and who pays attention to body language and on and on and on. And they get more focused on the dynamics of how that team makes decisions and then layer that against what they know about effective decision-making processes to see if that happens. And then when you hear about say a team like the team at Notre Dame who might have you know, 10, 15 meetings with someone before they actually invest. They're doing all of those things. They're diving deep. In some meetings, they might dive deep on ideas. In other meetings, they might be paying more attention to the team. If you look at it, like take one step back from where we are now, how important are meetings for investors? What do you miss if you don't go to meetings or if you don't perform in these meetings? Well, I think you miss everything. What's investing that? based on, well, investing in an investment manager based on a piece of paper and a track record is a recipe for failure. People need to be in front of the people. There's a relationship, there's a partnership, and you need to understand what you're buying. And I don't think that's possible just reading a piece of paper, unless it's an index fund, which is a different, but we're talking about active managers. So I think it's essential in being successful as an active allocator of capital to be face-to-face with people. With the family I'm working with, and I invested in a fund that buys small family-owned businesses run by a a guy well-known in the financial social media circles named Brent Bishore, who lives in Missouri. Mm -hmm. And 
I first got to know Brent over 10 hours of the day of visiting him in wide ranging conversations and then spent many, many hours with him afterwards before making an investment, just getting to know both what he's doing and who he is. So that's an example of his strategy on a piece of paper looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. Looks like he goes out and he buys these great little businesses very cheaply and he looks at many, many, many businesses to find the one or two he wants to buy. It sounds great. Everybody would love to do it. Yeah. Getting to know him, you learn that it's incredibly difficult to pull off and there's a lot of reasons why. And part of why it's so difficult to, to pull off is that most of these businesses are sold by aging founders and it is their heart and soul, the business. And for them to sell their baby, they need to sell it to someone who they feel comfortable with. And Brent is someone who really knows how to make people feel comfortable. So to understand that about him takes a long time. You could invest just on a sheet of paper and say, wow, this sounds really interesting. But if you were going to do that, you would invest in every single manager pursuing the exact same strategy. And most of those managers will fail because mm. most of these businesses are not great businesses. But he, from the meetings, I learned is a very, very special person who happens to be playing in this niche that also looks really interesting. Before we return to our conversation, I'd like to highlight one of the strategies Ted just mentioned. When assessing an investment manager or team, Ted will not only ask them about their process, but he will also want to dive deep into specific investments. In other words, he doesn't only want them to talk about it in general terms, he also wants them to show what it looks like in practice. This strategy is important in any conversation, but it's particularly useful when assessing people and teams. If an example is inconsistent with the process they described, it's important not to get too confrontational. Just point it out. Say that you understand that life doesn't always follow general principles and kindly ask them to help you understand what happened here. This will help you get a deeper understanding of the process and gain more insight into its real life application. With that being said, Let's go back to our conversation in which we talk about the crucial importance of culture in assessing investment teams. If, for example, if you go to a manager and let's assume it's not a one-man show, but a team, what kind of questions do you ask to get a view on culture to assess it? I think uh, Paul Black also said in your episode, like you don't walk in and say like, hey, what's your culture? So, so how, do you, <laughs> uh, how do you go about that? That's exactly right, right? You don't sort of ask what, you, you can ask what's your culture like, but you're not going to get into the meat of it. One set of questions is to ask questions about the various meetings they have, hmm. who attends the meetings and what the structure of the meetings are, and that will help. A better way to do it is to attend one of those meetings. Is that really possible? for yourself. Sure. Okay, so that happens, and then you are fly on the wall. Exactly. Now- That's tricky, right? Not every organization will let you in their meetings. Mm. If you're in the meeting, by definition, it changes the dynamic of the meeting, right? People will be more respectful of each other than they might otherwise. <laughs> they will walk on eggshells because you are the egg in the room. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. But if you've done that for many, many different organizations, even with that, there will be dramatically different 
tones of the dialogue that happened, even if it's all kind of kinder and gentler because you're in the room. What kind of things are you looking at when you are in a meeting like that, a fly on a wall? I think you're looking at how differences of opinion arise and are handled. Mm -hmm. Is it one person who is really the decision maker, which often these organizations are, by the way, and is that person taking in different opinions that are coming in or are those people sort of squashed down a little bit? There's also different flow, right? So does the leader of the meeting run the entire meeting, express their opinions, and then ask other people for their opinions? Or do the opinions come bottom up, say from the most junior person or the least informed to the most informed? Because we know mm -hmm. from research that as soon as I tell you my opinion, I am coloring and biasing your opinion of the same issue. And so the leader who starts by expressing their opinion has just lost the ability to get the diversity of opinions of the other people in the room. So I think there are things like that you look for. And I think you also do it within the setting that you're in. So mm -hmm. over time, you'll have meetings with a group of people from the other organization. And you're posing questions. And so you can see how do they answer questions? Does one person steamroll the other people? Do they let them give an answer? When the other person or junior person gives an answer and the senior person doesn't love the answer, do they push them down? Or do they say sort of, yes, that's a great perspective and let me add this to it? Are they always doing that? Or do they just let the people go and stumble a little bit and let that be okay? So there's a lot of things you can learn just from the meeting that you're in in the natural course of interviewing managers as well. Do you recall a challenging meeting in your role as an allocator? And can you tell me what happened? There was one meeting many, many years ago where we had invested in a manager in an early stage of that manager's life. The manager was starting to experience some very, very good success. And we learned some information about how they were going about their investment strategy that was quite different from what we had been told. Mm -hmm. And so we had a meeting where we shared that information with the manager. And suffice it to say, he was very, very defensive. And part of that was, and by the way, I should caveat this by saying there was nothing unethical going on. This was really about <laughs> investment strategy. Okay. But he was very defensive because it was something that was boosting his performance in the early stages of his fund's life that would not be able to do that later in the later stages. And he was just starting to get real traction hmm. in the community and grow his fund. And so I think he was very worried about any negative information coming out. And so that was sort of an interesting meeting and it turned pretty hostile, I would say. What happened? Um, he was very angry and he, was, he took it as a challenge to his integrity and wasn't really willing to just accept what we saw as sort of factual evidence. And so it was a very tense meeting, and that was how it ended. And that business relationship ended shortly thereafter. We did our best to sort of make peace and say, look, this isn't going to serve anyone for you know, this negativity to be out there, so we'll keep our mouths shut, and you can too. And, and then that didn't happen on one side or the other, and, and so it grew more difficult over, say, the next year. And eventually it just sort of faded into the sunset. If we go um, back that was, to that meeting, what, what did you do specifically, and what would you have done differently if you look at it in hindsight? In hindsight, what we did 
was just almost say, we gotcha. Like, we just found this out. Please explain yourself. What I might have done differently would be to introduce the dynamic that this might be a difficult conversation. This is sort out of, of the unexpected. Box. Out of the box. Unexpected, difficult, with no judgment about you personally or your business or just try to get them on the same side of the table. Say, I, you know, I need your help understanding something that we just see in this data. Almost from um, a position of humility uh, instead of celebrating your uh, discovery you made. Correct. Hmm. If we look at managers, we talked about allocators for a while. If you look at managers, you met many managers in your role as an allocator and also on the podcast. If you look at them, like what do you think they struggle with the most when it comes to communication and meetings? Ultimately, it comes down to listening. I think that when you're in a dynamic when someone enters a room to be presenting their heart and soul, their business, their strategy, they do have a tendency to just tell their story, press play and tell their story, and don't always get a good sense of what is the person across the desk looking for? Is it a fit? If it's not a fit, hey, that's okay. You know, We're going to need to move on to the next one. And a lot of managers don't do that because it's their you know, particularly in the where I was uh, been involved for many years in the earlier stage of their business, every meeting feels like it's a make or break moment for them. The discipline of listening, I have come both through the podcast and through experience to realize there is sort of a, a body of knowledge. Just like you know, if you take algebra, you need to learn certain principles to understand how to do algebra. Listening is the same way, and I've heard or, or spoken to people involved in interrogating terrorists, in negotiations, in relationship therapy, couples therapy, and it's all the exact same set of tools. And that set of tools looks something like this. Hmm. It starts with mirroring, you know, understanding by repeating what the person said to you that you understood that, that that's what they said and giving them the room and time to fully flesh out the ideas that they'd like to express. And then there's validating, which is sort of if someone is expressing a view to you, letting them know that their view is valid. Doesn't mean you agree with it, but that it's valid. And then depending on the context of conversation, there's a little bit of empathizing. So certainly in It's not necessarily the same thing in this type of, of business setting, but in negotiation, in interrogation, in counseling, there is an important need to empathize and understand the emotions behind what someone's presenting to you. And what shocked me was in a hardcore hostage negotiation and in a couple's therapy workshop, it's the exact same set of tools. And so they're not easy to do every day, but... I have seen them be effective even in the communication setting of investment managers presenting ideas. And what were you doing in a uh, hostage negotiation workshop? I wasn't. This is having some dialogues with a guy named Chris Voss. He wrote a great book called Never Split the Difference. Before we continue, here's a quick note about the book Ted just mentioned. Never Split the Difference by former FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss is one of the best books I read in the past year. While many of us think about a negotiation as an exchange of statements, 
Chris Voss explains that it's much more powerful to ask open-ended questions and let the other side go first. This allows you to gain access to the other person's mind, which is crucial in any negotiation. Let's return to my conversation with Ted Seides. Uh, what's the, the uh, best communicator that you met in your line of work? Or someone there, you learned from? Yeah. There are a certain set of people I've learned a tremendous amount from. I, I would start with David Swenson, who was really my mentor in the formative part of my career. And he's a gifted educator uh, as well as investor. There are a lot of great investors who also are great communicators. So someone like Warren, obviously, Seth Klarman at Baupost, just a brilliant, brilliant communicator. Those are some at the very top of my list. What did you learn from, for example, David Swenson? I don't know where to start with that. Well, if, we, if we focus on, on what happens in meetings. Yeah. So one of the lesser known characteristics of David's success has been his ability to work with his board, which is the investment committee, who's ultimately responsible for making the decisions. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in the way he worked with his board is that if there was a decision that needed to get made, he would seek out their guidance well in advance of the meeting. So he would let them know what was coming. He would ask if they had any issues with it, if they could help in any way, so that by the time he got to the meeting when the decision was getting made, people were already effectively supporting the decision. And that was something that I saw very effective. And, and you have to keep in mind, today, David probably could do whatever he wants and people will nod their heads. When he was in his 30s, hadn't written a book and was only known to that group as the person who was running that office he really had to think through how do I get decisions implemented? And that was sort of the period of time when I was there. So that's probably you know, the way he worked with his board was highly, highly effective. Let's turn to the uh, podcast. You wrote a brilliant blog about how you started with the podcast. How did your work as an investor prepare you for being a, a podcast host? Yeah, so I think it was incredibly important in two ways. The first is... I just knew a lot of terrific people in the industry. So it was not hard for me. I think in my first 50 episodes, 45 of them were people I had already known. So that's helpful. The other thing that was inordinately helpful was that I wasn't actively engaged in all that much work at the time. I was looking. I was tr trying to find what I was going to do next, and I just hadn't found it. And as a result of that, I didn't feel like I had a lot to say. And the reason that ended up being important was it didn't take me too long, it'd be hard for me to count, a single-digit number of episodes before I realized that it was going to be a lot more interesting for me and the listeners if I took myself out of the conversation as much as possible and let the guests tell their story. And so the irony is I started down that path in part because I was feeling a little insecure because I didn't have anything to say because I wasn't actively engaged. The truth is, after doing this work for 20 or 25 years, I'm very familiar with the subject matter. And I think that's allowed me to ask the next question in a little bit more depth than someone who is outside the industry would understand. If you're talking about how you're interacting and making a decision with your investment team, I've conducted those meetings. I've been in those meetings. I've made mistakes. And so when someone talks about a certain process, I've probably either been involved in that process or tried that process and have opinions about why it succeeded or failed. What I then learned to do is not express my opinion, 
but instead just ask the question that brings up the same issue and let the guests express their opinion. Hmm. And if we look at the communication angle of, of the work of an investor, how did that prepare you for the role of an interviewer? I would say poorly in the sense that I had developed a certain style of interviewing for many years that was fairly factually based and I would say was not overtly aware of when I was expressing opinions or when I was listening to other people's opinions. I had interviewed lots of people, but it wasn't the same style. And if anything, now that I've shifted back to also you know, being involved in investing, I was shocked at how much better I am now at interviewing investment managers because of the podcast experience as opposed to the other way around. What's the biggest difference you see now? I'm just much more comfortable listening actively. How much do you think about a conversation for the podcast in advance, and how do you prepare for that? It depends on what the conversation is. So a lot of the people I interview, there's not a lot of public information about them or how they go about doing what they do. For that particular subset, the nice thing is I've sat in the seat where they're in. So... I just will tell them, look, we're going to talk about you and your background, and we're going to talk about how you think about investing and how you do it. And that's the entire preparation, hmm. other than you know whatever I can dig up. For other people that are outside the subject matter, you know, authors of books or things like that, it's just you, you have to read the book. I think anyone in this seat, every week probably someone is sending me a book, which is terrific, and they'd like to be on the show. And I'd love to be able to read them all. I just don't have time. You have to pick your spots. And so it's changed from my first couple episodes. I similarly made a big, long question list. And what I found was when I listened back to those episodes, I would miss a question or two. And the reason was I was distracted. I was distracted by being focused on what question I was planning to ask next. And what I evolved to is not really preparing questions at all. Not so at all. I'll do as much, not at all. I go into my conversations with a couple of topics that I'd like to discuss, but I don't word out questions at all. And usually my prep notes are half a sheet of paper with 15 or 20 words on them. What I found is the more stuck I get into questions that I want to ask, the less I'm able to effectively listen. Because you are not in the moment. You are <laughs> in your preparation. Absolutely right. And so the hard part is just the trust. Like I need to trust that I will figure out in the moment what the next question will be. And that's, I guess, a skill that I didn't realize I had. And that's been fortunately reflected on me kindly by other listeners. That's just fortunate that I enjoy these conversations and it's easy for me to be engaged in them. And they're at an interesting high level. And how many episodes did it take you to have that confidence and to just go in there with, with a couple words on a sheet of paper? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it depends on who I'm interviewing. So if it's a chief investment officer, it probably took me half a dozen to realize, you know what, let me just go at this. But almost everyone else that's not a chief investment officer of a big pool of capital, I do have more prep involved because I feel like I need to get into the subject matter and understand it as well as I can to be prepared. Mm. I still will go into most of those conversations with a fairly limited notes. 
but the flow of conversation it will be planned out in advance. And I think that's a key thing. I, I happen to go to Harvard Business School, which is taught with a case study method. The way that the classes are conducted, about 80 or 90% of the class of the spoken word in a class session is done by the students. Hmm. And the teacher is really an orchestrator of that. I was shocked one day. I went down to ask a professor a question, and I saw his notes on his desk and they were an exact match for the notes that were on the blackboards. And yet he had said next to nothing. So there is an important part of these conversations where you are, as the interviewer, you are that conductor. And I spend probably more time thinking about what might the flow of conversation look like than just what questions am I going to ask? After everything you've done as an allocator, as a podcast host, everything in investing, what's the number one communication lesson that you learned that also applies outside investing? Listen. Listen, and not only that, but listen with great interest in the people delivering the message because whatever it is they're telling you is invariably incredibly important and meaningful to them. I'm still a work in process on succeeding in that, but it's an appreciation that I've gotten over years that I certainly didn't have when I was younger. What are you doing to still get better at that? Are you, for example, taking training or something like that? Well, part of it is just interviewing people on podcast every week. That's so good you're training. Practicing that, you're practicing that every week. And then my sort of day job is similar, right? I'm interviewing investment managers and sometimes executives of companies if they're direct investments. So in my day-to-day, -day, I'm often in that setting. And I think thanks you to the podcast. You expose yourself to these yeah, situations. I, you know, the first 20-something years of my career were really spent on that learning and executing on investment strategies in a certain way. And then in the last year and a half alongside of that, I've had this podcast. And that's really opened me up to a, a different way of listening. And I brought it into those conversations and have found that I'm far more effective than I ever was. What's next to you? Because, you know, as a question from a fellow podcaster, you have a weekly show. That's quite a lot of work, I think. Uh, and you have other work as well. Are you um, going to keep doing the podcast? What's next is probably to downshift it. It is a lot of work to do it weekly. And a, a number of months ago, I decided that no one, almost including me, has the time or bandwidth to digest everything that I'm putting out every week. So now that said, when I downshift it, and that might mean every other week, that will only come when I don't have a big roster in that moment of people that I really want to talk to. And I actually have more recorded episodes today as we're talking than I've ever had before. So it's going to take a few months for that to happen. And then the focus of my time and energy outside of that is really on investing capital. I've been working with uh, one family of someone I've known for a long time who's had great success in the asset management business. And as He has a liquidity event coming up, so we've been preparing for that. And as that happens, we'll see what happens, whether I'll just continue to manage his or more likely we might look for some other investors alongside who have similar interests in the way that they'd like to have their capital managed. Is Warren ever going to come on your show? Warren is not going to come on the show. I, I've asked <laughs> him twice. And the second time it was he really walked me through the why, which was very, very interesting. So he's... 
getting a little on in his years. He's very focused on this time. And, and what he said was the problem he has is not coming on my show. It's that he probably has 10 people he considers very good friends who have all asked him to go on their shows. And he feels like he can't do one and not do all of them. So as a result, he's just said he's not planning to do any podcasts. Well, who's going to be your 100th guest? I haven't figured that out yet. It's coming up. I was hoping it would be him or David Swenson, who also respectfully declined. So I have a feeling at this point in time that the 100th guest is just going to be one of 100 fantastic conversations and, and not some marquee uh, person or event. And maybe I'll just skip it and call it 101 until I come back and have one of those big names to come on. <laughs> Seth, uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Marcel. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 